From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. Candidates debate for the first time in Georgia's crucial Senate race. Then Ron Elving on the January 6th committee's decision to subpoena former President Trump. Then a Florida community still stranded two weeks after Hurricane Ian. Later, the new award-winning film about a cruise that is no love boat. And a visit with John Irving, who has written his largest novel ever and says... Mm. If someone told me that I was going to write a longer novel than <laughs> I would have laughed at them. It's still shorter than David Copperfield, barely. Well, begin by listening to our interview. First, our newscast. Today is Saturday, October 15, 2022. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. With retail spending flat as Americans brace for rising food and housing costs and stocks still sagging, President Biden and congressional Democrats are approaching what is expected to be a grueling midterm reckoning. Today, the president wraps up the last leg of his biggest campaign trip yet ahead of the midterms. NPR's Amy Held reports he's set to deliver a speech on inflation in Portland, Oregon. President Biden is fundraising and trying to sell to voters his administration's successes in his Western tour this week to Colorado, California, and now Oregon. There, Democrat Tina Kotek is running in a tight race for governor, one of three dozen gubernatorial races on the ballot in November. Today, Biden attends a reception for Kotek and addressed her campaign workers on Friday. What a governor does matters. It matters. Also today in Portland, Biden will talk about inflation, an issue that threatens to be a liability as Democrats seek to hold on to razor-thin majorities in Congress. A third of the Senate is up for re-election, along with the entire House. Amy Held, NPR News. Officials in northeast Ukraine say they have finished exhuming remains from a mass grave. NPR's Nathan Rott reports more mass burials are being discovered every week. The mass grave investigators have finished exhuming in the northeast town of Liman was for Ukrainian military members. 34 individuals were removed and sent to the morgue, authorities say. Work continues on another mass grave for civilians nearby, where it's believed that the remains of more than 120 people are buried. Ukraine's successful counteroffensive in the northeast of the country is liberating towns that have been under Russian occupation in some cases for months. And authorities are finding deceased Ukrainian and Russian servicemen and civilians in most. Russia, meanwhile, continues widespread missile attacks around the country on civilian and energy infrastructure. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Lviv. Installing a new Treasury chief, British Prime Minister Liz Truss has abandoned a planned cut to the corporation tax, previously a centerpiece of a British economic plan that sparked weeks of market and political turmoil there. Now Britain's new finance minister, Jeremy Hunt, says the U.K. faces what he terms difficult decisions in the future. Villa Marks reports. The fourth British finance minister this year, Hunt told the BBC that mistakes had been made with last month's tax proposals by offering cuts for the country's highest and pushing forward with a plan that had not been independently assessed. He promised to be honest with the British public, but warned that difficult decisions on government spending lay ahead. Villa Marks in London. Starting tomorrow, China's Communist Party Congress convenes in Beijing. President Xi Jinping is poised to win a third five-year term as General Secretary of the ruling party. This is NPR News in Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Haverhill and Malden teachers have authorized their union leaders to call strikes on Monday because of what they say are stalled contract talks. The Haverhill School Committee says any job action would violate an order by the State Labor Relations Board not to strike. The Haverhill Teachers Union president, Tim Briggs, says teachers want the city to use federal funds to raise pay and address other issues. And he says they also want to say in personnel decision making. We have seen so many principals, vice principals, administrators come and go. We would really like a seat at the table to have some say, because at the end of the day, every time one of those folks comes and goes, it's teachers that adjust. The head of the Malden Teachers Union says a strike could be averted if, at a minimum, the school committee negotiates with the union this weekend. The mayor of Malden says the school committee will continue bargaining in good faith. A budgetary watchdog group wants Boston Mayor Michelle Wu to veto 20 percent pay raises for city councilors and an 11 percent pay raise for herself. In a press release, the Boston Municipal Research Bureau says the pay raises do not align with the Compensation Advisory Board's recommendations. Earlier this week, Mayor Wu said she is considering a veto because she's concerned by the amount and timing of the proposed raises. The Boston Public Health Commission is warning people to avoid part of Boston Harbor upstream of the North Washington Street Bridge until tomorrow morning. The commission says a sewage overflow yesterday has caused an increased health risk from bacteria and other pollutants. In the forecast, plenty of sunshine today with a high around 70, lows in the low 50s overnight, a mostly sunny Sunday tomorrow's highs in the mid-60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, icaboston.org. The Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement, peer-led courses, speakers, and more. Apply now for 2023, the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for being with us. A race in Georgia could determine control of the U.S. Senate last night in Savannah. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock faced off against Republican Herschel Walker, the only debate between the two before the election, and as expected, the debate got sharp. Here's Senator Warnock. We will see time and time again tonight, as we've already seen, that my opponent has a problem with the truth. And and here is Walker's response later. Do not bear false witness, Senator. Do not bear false witness. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler watched the debate and joins us. Stephen, thanks for being with us. Good morning. This is the uh, first time the candidates have met face-to-face during the campaign. Was anything revealed that was new or substantive uh, about either of them? So not really. We knew going into this that Warnock would tout his bipartisan work with people like Texas Senator Ted Cruz and Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama and his measures to lower the cost of health care for seniors. That's exactly what we heard from him. 
with Warnock deflecting questions about if he felt responsible for inflation with a list of accomplishments he did to keep individual costs down. Now, Walker intentionally set his bar low, saying he's not that smart and that Warnock, a pastor, would out-debate him. That bar was cleared. We also knew that Walker's strategy was going to be to tie Warnock to President Joe Biden, who's deeply unpopular here, and say inflation, issues with the economy, crime, and other things are the fault of Democratic control of Congress for the last two years. There weren't really many opportunities for the candidates to go deep on issues given the debate format, and moderators did lose control of the candidates bickering back and forth a couple times throughout the night. Of course, Mr. Walker's campaign is being unalterably opposed to anti-abortion, saying it is never acceptable under any circumstance. And of course, recent reporting from the Daily Beast includes an accusation that nevertheless he paid for the abortion of a former girlfriend. Did this come up? Surprisingly, Scott, barely. Walker was asked by the moderators about this story and allegation, and Herschel Walker said yet again it wasn't true and that he wasn't backing down from saying it wasn't true. And there wasn't really a follow-up question, and Senator Warnock didn't really push it either. What is notable is that Walker backtracked on his absolute stance on abortion. He previously expressed support for a federal national ban, but then had this to say. I say I support uh, the heartbeat bill. And I say I support the Georgia heartbeat bill because that's the bill of the people from Governor Kemp. That's Georgia's new abortion law, which takes effect about six weeks into pregnancy before many know they're pregnant. It was held up for several years by the courts, but took effect after this summer's Supreme Court ruling. And Georgia's law does make exceptions for rape, incest, and cases where the pregnancies are considered medical emergencies. It was one of the few really meaningful exchanges throughout the debate mm -hmm. and on an issue that's top of mind for many voters here. Uh, I don't have to tell you, Stephen, it's not only a close Senate contest, but uh, a lot of people feel it could it could hold the balance of power in the U.S. Senate and a lot of attention and money is coming in from across the country. Tell us what's at stake again. Sure, because like you said, once again, control of the U.S. Senate could come down to Georgia voters. Republicans are all in on Walker in spite of his campaign controversies, because at the end of the day, he could be the 51st seat for them and give them power in the second half of President Biden's first term. Even though Georgia voted for Biden in 2020, the state is still run by Republicans. So Democrats think a Warnock win could help flip races like governor and secretary of state. It's also entirely possible, Scott, that none of these key races here see anyone get above the majority threshold needed to win outright. There's a libertarian candidate who's actually somewhat popular as people who don't want to vote for Herschel Walker and won't vote for mm -hmm. Raphael Warnock are seeking a third option. So we could see an early December runoff race extend election season even further. Stephen Fowler of Georgia Public Broadcasting, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. We're joined now by NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Ron, what difference do debates make these days? There's so many so different options for people to screen, entertainment as well as politics. Ah, indeed. But debates can make a difference, especially when the candidates are still relatively new to politics. And that's true of both candidates in Georgia, really. It's the first time that both major parties have Senate nominees who are African Americans. One, of course, the current senator, Raphael Warnock, a prominent black minister. The other, the football legend, Herschel Walker. Now, Walker went into this debate as an outspoken opponent of abortion rights, an outspoken abortion foe who has nonetheless faced accusations of having paid for an abortion for his girlfriend, which he denies. Walker is one of several Senate nominees around the country 
who won their nominations with the help of former President Trump. So here, as elsewhere, this election will be seen as a test of Trump's continued strength and his potential electability if he runs again in 2024. And of course, this very week, the January 6th panel on Thursday voted 9-0 unanimously to subpoena the former president to testify for the panel. Uh, Committee Chair Benny Thompson here explains uh, why he was subpoenaed. He is the one person at the center of the story of what happened on January 6th. So we want to hear from him. President is, former president is unlikely to show, we are told. Where does that leave the investigation? No matter how much information they bring out or how much attention they get, the ultimate impact of a congressional hearing depends on people who are not in Congress. It depends on prosecutors and judges, people in the executive and judicial branches of the government. Without prosecutions, this will all have just been an exercise, a useful one perhaps, informative and enlightening, but if it does not alter the arc of the Trump phenomenon, it will have been mostly just an exercise. You know, the, the Senate Watergate hearings way back didn't do Nixon in, except insofar as they revealed the existence of tape recordings of White House conversations. It was up to the independent prosecutor who surprised many people with his pursuit of those tapes as evidence and the federal judiciary right up to the Supreme Court to hold, hold that prosecutor's evidence as admissible and to uphold that prosecutor's rights. Uh, that was what forced Nixon to resign. So bottom line right now, it's up to Attorney General Merrick Garland. Uh, Donald Trump responded on his own social media platform and, and perhaps not surprisingly dismisses the committee's request. He calls the investigation, quote, a total bust. Uh, there are no legal consequences uh, for him just uh, ignoring, blowing off a subpoena? There could be, but, but probably not in this case. For example, the Justice Department has declined to prosecute a contempt of Congress charge against former Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Uh, he defied his subpoena, claiming executive privilege. Uh, and that's what Trump will ultimately probably do. He may think he wants to come in and joust with the committee on live primetime TV on his own terms, yeah. uh, but his lawyers know that he would be under oath and in imminent danger of committing perjury, uh, which would be easier to prosecute, so it's highly unlikely he will appear. Former presidents uh, struggle to have a special master, Judge Raymond Deary, have access to documents the FBI uh, took from his Mar-a-Lago estate, suffered a setback before the Supreme Court this week, didn't it? Yes, and this too was unanimous. At least there were no recorded dissents. Mm -hmm. uh, Trump's lawyers may well have hoped that this request for, quote, emergency relief, unquote, would be handled on an emergency basis by just one Supreme Court Justice, Clarence Thomas. Uh, he would usually have jurisdiction over emergency petitions from this part of the country. But Justice Thomas passed it on to the full court to decide. The full court response was one sentence long and a rather dismissive sentence at that. So last night, the Justice Department asked the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta to simply dismiss the special master and end the review of these documents ordered last month by a lower court in Georgia. Uh, that was a rather bold move by justice that suggests they think they may have the upper hand here. Ron Elvin, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Small notes in the news can sometimes shake you the most. This week, Newsweek ran one of those best places in the U.S. articles, but 
It wasn't about the best local barbecue, towns for retirement, or trips to see fall foliage. It was best place to survive nuclear war. For the past generation, the threat of nuclear destruction has been overshadowed by fears of climate catastrophe, global disease outbreaks, terrorism, and the shattering of democracy. But now it looms again. As President Biden recently told Democratic donors, for the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, we have a direct threat to the use of nuclear weapons. President Vladimir Putin says he will use all systems available to defend the territorial integrity of our motherland. In other words, he brushes grip on the four eastern provinces of Ukraine he has annexed. Putin contends the two atomic bombs the United States dropped on Japan to end World War II have created a precedent. Were they a precedent or a warning? The horror over the deaths in Hiroshima and Nagasaki showed the world that any war deploying nuclear weapons would be more suicide pact than a conflict. As John F. Kennedy said, even the fruits of victory would be ashes in our mouth. Several great Cold War novels and films, including On the Beach, Failsafe, and Dr. Strangelove, imagined a nuclear war might be triggered by some ghastly technical malfunction or personal madness. They did not imagine that a visibly rational person would push a button to launch a nuclear attack. What kind of human being would choose mutually assured destruction? Ukraine signed a 1994 treaty that sent to Russia the old Soviet warheads that had been situated on Ukrainian soil so they would be less likely to be stolen or sold to criminals or terrorists. Russia, in turn, agreed to respect the independent sovereignty and the existing borders of Ukraine. Russia's invasions of Ukraine have displaced millions, killed tens of thousands, and set off food shortages around the world. Now, Vladimir Putin may have also brought back a dread of destruction many thought was history. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 8.18. And ahead on Weekend Edition Saturday, John Irving discusses his novel, The Last Chairlift. That and much more coming up on Weekend Edition. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And BU Art Galleries, presenting the work of visionary artists Say Adams in a career retrospective exhibit through December 11th. BU.edu art. Stay informed about a full range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. Sunny today in Boston, a high around 70 degrees. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. The Justice Department is asking an appeals court to short-circuit a special master review set in motion by a lower court ruling, arguing that former President Trump has no plausible claims of executive privilege over documents the FBI collected at Mar-a-Lago. President Biden took his message of administration accomplishments to California this week, telling an audience at Irvine Community College that in the face of drug industry price increases, his Inflation Reduction Act has been right on time. 
The European Union's chief diplomat is warning that Russian forces face annihilation if the Kremlin uses nuclear weapons to target Ukraine. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Insperity, providing HR services for 30-plus years, including access to employee benefits and payroll. Insperity's mission is to help businesses succeed so communities prosper. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Flooding is still receding in Florida's interior more than two weeks after Hurricane Ian. Amy Green of WMFE in Orlando visited a neighborhood where the only road in remains washed out, and that leaves many residents stranded. Getting to Lake Harney Woods is no easy task. The bridge here across the St. John's River is impassable with three feet of water over the bridge. To cross the river, I took a detour that added about an hour. Hi, are you Cindy? Hey there, yes, I'm Cindy. Cindy Decker and her family picked me up outside the neighborhood on their side-by-side, which is a swamp buggy of sorts that sits high off the ground. These vehicles cut a wake through the up to foot and a half of water on the road. So if we happen to pass another vehicle, pick your feet up. <laughs> For Decker, it was a nerve-wracking trip. We don't know what the condition of the road is underneath the water or underneath the asphalt. The county stopped picking up trash from the neighborhood because of concerns about the road's condition. And inside the neighborhood, the trash was piling up. Later, on dry land, Cindy's 12-year-old daughter, Delaney, said the worst part about the flooding is she can't go to school. It's kind of annoying because I don't have too many friends out here, except for the kids at the bus stop, but obviously the bus isn't coming out here. Lake Harney Woods is a pastoral community of some 220 homes, many with a few acres and livestock like cows, horses, and chickens. It's situated on Lake Harney, which is part of the St. John's River. The St. John's is the longest river in Florida. It flows north through east-central Florida to Jacksonville and then out to the Atlantic Ocean. Since Hurricane Ian dumped a monumental 20 inches of rain on parts of the region, the river has remained swollen as widespread floodwaters continue to drain through tributaries on their way out to sea. Lisa Reinemann with the environmental organization St. John's Riverkeeper says in some places like Lake Harney Woods, it could be Thanksgiving before the waters fully recede. The St. John's is known as one of the laziest rivers in the country because it's a long river, but it only drops in elevation that 27 feet. Most of that's in the first hundred miles. Residents are coping by relying on each other. John Pellerin lives with his wife on nearly six acres, where they have a horse, cows, chickens, and other animals. He's been sharing eggs with needy neighbors. We've got one neighbor out here that's been transporting people's cars on a car hauler trailer with his big 4x4 in and out so they could park up on 46 so they could get to and from work. 
The cars are lined up outside the neighborhood. Residents arrange a ride across the swamp street with someone who has a vehicle that can manage the water. Then they get in their own cars and go to work, but it can be a long drive because of that impassable bridge. Other residents have made a point to check on neighbors to make sure everyone is okay. Cindy Decker's husband, Martin, says there's been flooding before, but never like this. We've been out here 26 years and been through numerous hurricanes. That's the worst it's ever been. Cindy Decker says since Hurricane Ian, she has left the neighborhood only twice, and neither she nor her husband have returned to work yet. It's tough being, you know, stuck with no place to go and nothing to do, but we do have a community here. They feel a little abandoned with so much attention on southwest Florida, where Hurricane Ian destroyed coastal communities but they also feel fortunate that their plight is not worse. For NPR News, I'm Amy Green in Lake Harney Woods, Florida. After Brown versus the Board of Education and the Civil Rights Act, life in one small North Carolina town was still largely defined by segregation and racism. The house next to us that was the white family, and they played with us, but they wouldn't play with us in public. They only played with us at home because we were black, so they couldn't show openly that we were, you know, really good friends. A story that's close to home for our own Aisha Roscoe, how change came slowly and painfully to rural North Carolina. You can tune in tomorrow as Weekend Edition Sunday profiles members of the civil rights generation continues. You can listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR for your member station by name. John Irving has written huge bestsellers, beginning with The World According to Garp, and now at the age of 80, he's written his longest novel, putting pen to paper like a Dickensian scrivener on a slanted writing board. I used to just write on uh, clipboards, but... Both at my age, and because I had a spinal fracture in July of 2020, I was told to get one of these um, posture right, they're called. Whoever thinks those are things up should be shot, but I hated it at first, of course. But I love it now. I can't. I, John I really Irving's like office it. is a floor above his home in a I'm Toronto condo for. tower. Family photos fill the walls there. And any fan of John Irving's novels will find similarities between his characters and the stories in those photos. A little boy who didn't know his father, New England prep schools, wrestling tournaments, and the families we assemble. That is my daughter, Eva, who I'm sure we'll talk about. And that that is my um, graduation from Exeter. I guess I was 19. And the one above it. People in, is, it looks like Air Force? That would be U.S. Army Air Force. Front row center is my biological father, who I have no memory of meeting. I met him when he was a soldier and I was an infant. We sit at a large round table piled high with copies of John Irving's new book, The Last Chairlift. The story takes Adam Brewster, who's a novelist and screenwriter from infancy to old age. His father unknown for most of the book. His mother a ski instructor who's away most of the time. His stepfather, an English teacher who transitions to female and whom Adam adores and worries about. The books seem as big as concrete blocks. We are living in an age, a digital age, short attention span, things that are evanescent and then disappear. 
Why do you write an 889-page novel? <laughs> yeah, that's a good place to start. <laughs> right, you are. Uh, for some years now, I think of the novels of mine that are waiting to be written as boxcars in a train station, not yet coupled to an engine. A lot of consideration went into the order of the trains I've chosen, and I knew this would be long. I did not know mm -hmm. it would be the longest, longer than Bleak House. Mm. If someone told me when I read Bleak House that I was going to write a longer novel than Bleak House, <laughs> I would have laughed at them. It's still shorter than David Copperfield, barely. Okay, all right, <laughs> well then. I think uh, Roberta Muldoon in Garp is the first really flesh-and-blood trans character I can recall reading about. Mm -hmm. This is an area that you have explored, you have written about. Yeah. Tell us what brought you to this theme. I think years before a lot of people were paying attention to Correct. it. It's ironic to think of Roberta now because I created her with the utmost affection, not only long before I had a trans daughter, but before she was born. Yeah. When I was beginning GARP, before Roe versus Wade, my mother reacted to something of a anti-abortion nature that was said on television. She said, if they can treat women like we're sexual minorities, how much worse will they treat gay men and lesbian women? The trans character idea hadn't yet even occurred to my mom, but that really hit home. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I've always had a, an inclination to the outsider. In many of my family saga novels, mm -hmm. there is a familiar premise that is revisited again and again. There's this elusive, evasive, somewhat mysterious mother. There's an absent or missing biological father. Uh, there's a child who's an outsider within his own family who's looking for answers. From that formula, which is autobiographical, I think I always construct each time a very different outcome and a very different cast of characters. Um, forgive me, but in your works over the years, have you learned from your daughter that you got something wrong? Has your personal experience with your daughter changed your writing of different characters? I don't think changed is the operative word. It's given me even more interest and devotion to those characters who are sexual minorities and who are treated with intolerance. I think the subject of sexual tolerance, and that would include women's rights, mm -hmm. um, having a, a trans daughter has only confirmed for me that my instinct to support those characters in my fiction was not ill-founded. Yeah. It's encouraged me to do it more. I set out to make a short list of the way some people die in this novel, some of your characters. 
and it turned out to be not short at all. I'm not surprised to hear that. Uh, of course, lightning, murder on a stage, sudden avalanche sets off an accident, cancer, murder in a hotel. Well, I'm decidedly a, a worst-case scenario writer. I think the, the way to write a novel with the most effective, and by that I mean emotionally moving ending, mm -hmm. is to create characters the reader cares about, if not outright loves, mm -hmm. and make terrible things happen to them. I'm a worst-case scenario writer because I have children, I have grandchildren, I have people I love, and your imagination, unfortunately, is not something you can shut off at the end of the day when you stop writing. If, if you have an inclination to fear the worst, you will worry when somebody's late. I've often said that I never had a subject until my first child was born because I was never afraid. Mm. And from the moment he was born, and I thought, oh, my God, you have to look after this person. Yeah. And how are you going to do that when they're old enough to no longer be at home? John Irving still has a trim wrestler's build and puts in a full day writing in longhand. He discloses that he writes the end of his novels first, then figures out how to get there. But at the age of 80, he's clear-eyed about his own future, which he sees in now writing shorter novels. You know, this is the first book on a three-book contract. Part of me thinks, my publishers must be crazy. They think I'm at least good for two more. Well, I better be. I mean, I'll stipulate, you look great. You could get me in a full Nelson without exerting much effort right I, now. I feel, full Nelson's a wrestling move, we should explain. I, yeah. I feel pretty good, but um, I see the, the daily exercise, the daily workouts have kind of come down, but I see no evidence even in this long novel, that yeah. I lose the thread of what I meant to hint and what I meant to take away and what I meant to hide and what I meant to let out. I know I'm fortunate to have the only job I ever wanted to have and to imagine myself, as I always do, dying at my desk, head down, It'll be a little uncomfortable on that damn thing. On that um, slanted board you write on. Yeah, the slanted board is not somehow as appealing as the flat surface, but so be it, you know. They'll change it for the screenplay. Yeah. I still like the idea of dying when I'm writing and leaving an unfinished sentence for somebody to figure out or finish for me or make the decision. That makes me feel good. John Irving? whose latest book is The Last Chairlift. I mean this in all ways. Thank you for everything. No, thank you. Thank you for being a close reader. I appreciate it. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. A valley high in the Colorado Rockies where soldiers trained in mountain combat long ago is now a national monument, established this week by President Biden. 
Lee Patterson with member station KUNC in northern Colorado spoke with people who've been pushing for this designation about what Camp Hale means to them. Today, little still stands, but in the 1940s, this vast, windy valley was home to a bustling military facility with a thousand buildings, including a hospital, barracks, and a shooting range. During World War II, soldiers with the 10th Mountain Division trained here in winter warfare, skiing, climbing, and living outside. I mean, this is the camp, but they weren't here in the camp that often. This is Susie Kincaid, a local wilderness advocate. They came back once a week maybe to shave and shower, and then they'd head back up for another week of maneuvers. Large chunks of the field house remain, as does a grid of roads. Mountain peaks, thick forests, and sheer rock faces ring the valley. That's where they fell in love with the, the lifestyle and the mountaineering style and life in the Rocky Mountains. And that's why so many of them returned. Many who trained at Camp Hale went on to be leaders in the outdoor recreation industry. After the war, these soldiers created more than 60 ski areas, according to the Colorado Snow Sports Museum. One became the first executive director of the Sierra Club. Another founded the National Outdoor Leadership School, or Knowles. It's for the people of Colorado, but it also goes well beyond the people of Colorado. It's for all the people across America and the world. President Biden's creation of the Camp Hale Continental Divide National Monument out of national forest land means the area's history will be better preserved. Future development, like mining, will be prohibited. Skiing, snowmobiling, hiking and camping will still be allowed. Nancy Kramer came to the History Colorado Museum in Denver recently for the 10th Mountain Division Foundation's yearly meeting. She's the president. And I'm the daughter of William Ropesell Robertson, who was a medic in the 87th in the 10th Mountain Division. Her dad didn't talk much about the war until one day many years ago during a visit to the area. Before stopping at Camp Hale, the family pulled over nearby at Tennessee Pass to visit the 10th Mountain Division Memorial. My dad had been very quiet sitting in the back seat and he just, like a bullet, out the car door. Her dad put his hands on the stone memorial, running his fingers over the names. For this man who had not talked about the war, and for us to not really understand the significance to him, it all came to life. He was touching the names of his buddies that were killed. Around a thousand of these soldiers were killed in action during World War II. One of their most significant battles was at Riva Ridge in the mountains of Italy. Soldiers scaled up 2,000 feet at night, surprising the Germans and eventually taking control of the ridge. Bradley Noon is a current 10th Mountain Division veteran who served in Afghanistan. Looking out over the ruins of Camp Hale, he says this area has helped him heal from active combat. It's given me a place to recharge. It's given me a place to recover from my combat stress, my post-traumatic stress disorder, and my physical injuries. It's become my church, my therapists, my playgrounds, and uh, my gym. In addition to military history, the monument is also meant to preserve the history of the Ute tribes who lived on these lands long ago. But in response to Biden's proclamation, the Ute Indian tribe in Utah said they opposed the designation and that it was done without tribal consultation. For NPR News, I'm Lee Patterson. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Public records released by the state of Florida last night offer new details about last month's flight of migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard with no advance notice an effort orchestrated by Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. The records show the key roles played by the top aides to the governor, including the governor's public safety czar, Larry Keefe. The records indicate he traveled to Texas to oversee the program. The Miami Herald reports Keefe's presence in Texas could open him to potential criminal liability. Teachers in Haverhill and Malden are threatening to go on strike Monday. In both communities, the teachers want new contracts that include higher wages and better working conditions. Both unions have rallies scheduled for this afternoon. It's 54 degrees in Boston, sunshine today, a high around 70. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Philharmonic with Benjamin Zander and pianist Jonathan Biss, Beethoven and Rachmaninoff at Symphony Hall, October 19th, bostonphil.org, CIC Innovation Campus, committed to creating an office space where talent wants to work. Flexible office space tours available at cic.com enterprise. And Landry and Arkari Rugs and Carpeting, since 1938, with thousands of new and antique rugs. Boston, Salem, Framingham, and online at LandriandArkari.com. On this week's On the Media, a right-wing conspiracy monger gets his legal comeuppance. Alex Jones was ordered to pay nearly a billion dollars in damages for the extraordinary lies he spread about the Sandy Hook massacre. I'm in bankruptcy. We got two years of appeals. Ain't gonna be happening. Ain't no money. Don't miss this week's On the Media from WNYC. Today at 1 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Harvard Business Review. For 100 years, a source for management thinking, partnering with business experts to publish classic concepts and emerging ideas. More at hbr.org NPR. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The mother of Koser, Aisha and Noreen, the youngest to oldest of three sisters, died years ago. Then one day their baba, their father, dies too. Let's ask Fatima Oscar, the author of the new novel, When We Were Sisters, to read from their book, narrated in the voice of the youngest. Orphans, the aunties say, and we become something new. No longer a daughter, no longer my father's kid, but an orphan. Our mom is dead too, gone before I could speak. No one talks about her or how she died. Our dad, the only parent we knew. Now, orphaned, each aunt touches her hand to my head to get her salab. My head, now a home for palms. Everyone's unwashed fingers comb through my hair. Some of them grab at my forehead, their nails pressing into my skin as though they'll get extra by prying it open. The wailing in the room so loud it touches Allah. The wailing signaling Jannah so that the announcement can be known. There are orphans here, orphans that need to be cared for. Clothe them, feed them, be kind to them. They point to the Quran, clothe them. 
I looked down at the pink dress I've been wearing for three days, poofed up like a princess. Feed them, my fingers sticky with popsicle. Be kind to them, the hands pushing into my forehead, the new thing I am, taking hold of all my other names. Fatima Oscar, who is also a poet, pretty obviously, filmmaker, performer, and co-creator of the Emmy-nominated web series Brown Girls, joins us from Los Angeles. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. The pain on that early page is so wincing and so true. Is this territory you know from your own life? Yeah, my parents died when I was very, very young. I embody a lot of the same identity traits as Koser, so being South Asian, being Muslim, being femme, being queer. So there's a lot of Koser's pain that is a very similar pain to some that I know and excavated for this novel. Mm. The sisters are taken into the care of an uncle whose name is always blanked out like a redacted document. Why? Yeah, I did that for many reasons. I wanted to invoke a certain amount of fear of that character. And also, I wanted the reader to have the experience of reading it and thinking about the name that they filled in in their own head. The sisters grow up in, um, how to put this nicely, kind of a cold environment, don't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very mean one. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, help us understand that. Regulations, rules often without sense, loneliness, having to rely only on each other. Yeah, I think that a lot of times growing up as an orphan, I would read these stories with orphan protagonists, and yet none of them felt very true to me <laughs> as yeah. an orphan. I was like, this doesn't feel accurate. And when you're on the margins of a society and when you're vulnerable from such a young age by something like your parents dying in a society that's so organized around the nuclear family, there's a certain kind of cruelty that you might encounter that I think most people don't have a reference point for. Help us understand what the siblings mean to each other. Uh, Noreen, I think, is nine when the story begins. She becomes grown up all at once, doesn't she? Yeah, I think all of them do in certain ways. And they also struggle sometimes, and I think we see this a lot with Gosar, is the grownness and the maturity and then also these moments of being young and yeah. also having young logic or having a certain kind of arrested logic, particularly around her father's death, because it's such a hard thing for her to grapple with. And so these siblings, they love each other. You can feel it like they they share the same skin yeah. at certain points and they are the only ones who look out for each other. I am struck by the fact that they they love each other and yet they tear away from each other the the way that they would from parents at some mm -hmm. at some point. I mean, that's how you grow up, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think for them, they are each other's parents. Like yeah. there's the riff on the line where Koser is talking about, you know, they're my sisters, but they're also my brothers and they're also my mothers and they're everything. They're my everything. Yeah. And so there's kind of a way that the relationships are strained in a way that sibling relationships with parents maybe are not because they are also acting as each other's caretakers. And so it's not as easy as just being like, oh, there's siblings fighting. And then a parent comes in and steps in and is like, love your siblings. There's no one who can yeah. step in for them. So their fights are a little bit more vicious and a little bit more feral than I think fights that we're used to seeing among siblings. I've read interviews with you when you refer to the, um, the burden of representation. 
How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I grew up not ever seeing anyone who looked like me. And so even just when I first started to make art, there was so much resistance I got from people who were like, but this isn't what we think of a story from somebody who we think looks like you. And I was like, yeah, I know, <laughs> but this is the story I'm telling. And this is the story I want to tell. It's interesting that kind of thing of when folks start to mitigate you only through the lens of what you look like and not through the lens of your craft. There's a freedom when we push past, you know, these gatekeeping voices that say, this is the only narrative of these people that we're allowed to say. And we are saying, no, there's so many of us. And so I think for me, it's really about getting as many stories as we possibly can so that we can be very honest about what human relationships look like. And we don't have to try and sugarcoat them or try and downplay them for the fear of what that might do for our communities. You say in the afterward, you hope this book can be healing. How so? I think that that kind of thing of when you really grapple with an emotion, when you really grapple with some narratives, when you really grapple with the complexity of humanity, I think artwork that does that is healing, even if it puts you in an emotion that's very tough, you know? So even if you're contending with grief a lot in the book, I hope that there's a catharsis at the end of that, you know? There's not a neat resolution. No. There's just living. No, it's just life. And I, I don't think I give life. away the ending by saying it's just life. Yeah. And I think that there's healing in being able to say that and being able to say these characters just keep living and they keep living with their traumas and they keep living with their distances and they keep living with their longing and yet they still love each other. And for me, I think one of the dominant feelings I feel about the book is how much love is in it. Like these characters, they go through things that are so heartbreaking and so cruel and yet they still insist on loving as much as they possibly can, even when they're mean to each other. And I think that to me is what it means to be alive, is everyone is grappling with their little bundle of pain and joy and trauma, and yet they're still trying to find connection and they're still trying to find ways to care for each other. And that is like the only reason to keep living. Fatima Oscar, their novel, When We Were Sisters. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Think The Love Boat meets Lord of the Flies. A couple of model influencers, a Russian oligarch, a manure millionaire, in fact, a British arms dealer, and an American captain who spouts marks are on a cruise aboard a super yacht when a storm whips up and changes their destinations in all ways. Ruben Ostlin's new film, Triangle of Sadness, is his English-language debut it won the Palme d'Or Prize and received an eight-minute standing ovation. The film stars Harris Dickinson, the late Charles B. Dean, Dolly DeLeon, and Woody Harrelson as the Marxist captain of the yacht. And Ruben Ostland, the celebrated Swedish director, joins us now from London. Mr. Ostland, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What made you want to put all these characters together in the same story? Well, I think that the first initial idea was uh, that I wanted to do something that is dealing with beauty as a currency. Mm. The idea started eight years ago when I met my wife. She's a fashion photographer, and she told me quite much about the, the male models. 
And she told me about a male model friend that was working as a car mechanic. And two years later, he one, was one of the best paid male models in the industry. So he was like really ebullating in the society because of his beauty. Mm. The influencers are played by Harris Dickinson and Charles B. Dean. And, and we should notice, alas, Charles B. Dean died in August. He was just 32. Yeah. It was a tragedy, first of all, for her family and her fiancé, Luke. But it was also, of course, very sad for the people that was uh, working with the production. And I hope there's a way of like trying to uh, make the audience uh, look at her performance and try to pay tribute to her performance. Woody Harrelson, as we noticed, the ship's captain, and on a fateful night, he and Dimitri, the Russian um, uh, manure merchant. Yeah, that fertilizer billionaire. Uh, fertilizer billionaire, I beg your pardon. They get into a drinking contest and start throwing the Marxist zingers back and forth. Um, yeah. Are these two guys talking Marx instead of football, or how deep-seated are their convictions? Exactly. That's exactly how I look at it. They are sharing for two different ideologies, almost like that they are football fans. And for me, it was quite fun to go back to my upbringing in the 80s when the world was looking at the Western perspective as a liberal capitalistic perspective and then the Eastern perspective as a socialist and communist perspective. And I was going in to look on uh, the different quotes that, for example, Reagan and Thatcher uh, had and what Marx and Lenin, what the kind of quotes they had. Like one thing that was obvious was that Reagan was a great performer. He delivered his quotes in such an entertaining and fun way. Mm -hmm. It was like a little bit of a nostalgic trip to go back to look at these quotes. Mm. I've got a note, as a lot of the reviews have, there is an awful lot of regurgitation and evacuation in this movie. One especially long sequence that makes the the vomiting sequence in uh, in Bridesmaids look short. Um, <laughs> so let me let me approach this technically first. Did you have a vomit coordinator on set? Yes, we, we had a special FX team that was the one that was working with uh, vomiting. And actually the actors had a tube going into their mouth and oh. then pointing outwards. And rose hip soap works really well to use as uh, fake vomit. And I'll, I'll remember that the next time I need it, but yes. Yeah, and then we also had an actress, Sunni Meles, that could provoke uh, vomiting herself. Uh, so that was also a great help. Is this sequence there, as comic relief, were to say something about the contents of the lives the passengers are bringing forth? Let me put it that way. You know what, I, I'm very interested in when we can't live up to the social contract. You know, if you go to a captain's dinner, it's fine dining. And if you do it when the weather gets rough and the boat starts rocking, you're going to fight a little bit uh, with the fear of being seasick and maybe mm. will be seasick. I have always been interested in like when these kind of awkward situations when we don't know really how to deal with. The passengers wind up getting stranded on an island and... The social hierarchy begins to shift, doesn't it? Suddenly, oligarchs and arms dealers aren't as valuable to their new society as a member of the yacht's cleaning crew, beautifully played by Dolly de Leon. What happens? I was interested in starting the film in the fashion world, and there's very strong hierarchies in the fashion world. And on a luxury yacht, it's very strong hierarchies. And on the bottom 
of the hierarchy, you could say that the Filipino crew members are. They are lowest on the payroll. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in to take away all these hierarchies and put some of the passengers on the yacht and some of the crew members on the yacht on the deserted island. And all of a sudden, like money is not really a currency that you can use. Beauty is not the currency you can use in the same way as in the previous worlds, but the know-how, how to survive becomes the strongest currency. Um, there is a cleaning lady that Dolly de Leon plays uh, called Abigail that knows how to fish and make fire. So slowly she's ending up in the top of the hierarchy. And I thought it was interesting to look at yeah, what happens when you are, are turning the pyramid upside down? I, I should note, beauty is still some kind of currency because she takes a lover. <laughs> exactly. That's something that I thought was fun to play around with. Like, okay, Carl, the young male model, yeah. when he is in the fashion world and his girlfriend, Yaya, his girlfriend is saying, I'm going to be a trophy wife. And he's like, but what about love? But then when they end up on the deserted island and everybody's like very, very hungry, and uh, Abigail uh, is a woman and she's older and he starts to understand I can use my beauty and my sexuality in order to get more fish. I have to ask, when this film received the prolonged uh, ovation at Cannes, were some of the very people that you take pleasure in satirizing on their feet to acclaim the film? I understand what you mean, but I also feel that me myself are connected to that social group that is in Cannes. And I feel connected to the privileged people in our society. So I think that I'm trying to challenge myself when I make my films. I try to corner myself when I make my films. I think that art is something that we can use to ask ourselves questions, to put up dilemmas for ourselves and uh, ask ourselves, how do we create a better society? So I don't feel there's a contradiction in that, but I, I think you're right. I think there was a lot of people in, in, in that room that are the target for the content of the film. Ruben Ostlund, uh, his new film, Triangle of Sadness. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News, where B.J. Lederman writes our theme music. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues. Sunny today in Boston, a high around 70.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington Theater. Celebrate the grand reopening of the Huntington Theater and the legacy of August Wilson with Joe Turner's Come and Gone, now through November 13th. Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And Pingree School, a vibrant, all-gender, independent day school for grades 9 to 12 on the North Shore. Hosting an open house today from a 11 to 2. Pingree.org slash open house. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., This is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, inflation translated into some of the real rising costs of food and housing. And later, a new Communist Party Congress in Beijing, a new route for Venezuelan migrants coming into the USA, but many may not be able to qualify. Baseball playoffs, some highly favored teams have setbacks, And the B-52s wheels up from Athens, Georgia for one last farewell tour, which doesn't mean farewell. We'll do shows. We'll do We'll do more shows, especially like festivals and big outdoor places. (laughs) State fairs, bar mitzvahs. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, October 15, 2022. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The fate of President Biden's agenda for the next two years depends upon the results of the midterm elections now less than a month away. The president has been on a West Coast swing promoting his accomplishments, even as Democrats fight individually for seats in Washington. Last night, the citizens of Georgia had the opportunity to hear Republican Herschel Walker debate incumbent Senator Democrat Raphael Warnock. WABE's Sam Greenglass reports. Savannah's riverfront is usually packed with tugboats, cargo ships, and throngs of tourists. On this Friday night, supporters of Walker and Warnock gathered outside the doors of a waterfront hotel for the marquee debate of the year. In the end, it was a debate that was on message with few fireworks. I want you to think about the damage politicians like Joe Biden and Raphael Warnock have done to this country. We will see time and time again tonight, as we've already seen, that my opponent has a problem with the truth. Polls show Warnock and Walker locked in a tight race with early voting set to begin Monday. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Savannah. With her political fortunes teetering, British Prime Minister Liz Truss is reversing course on key economic policies and persons, abandoning a planned cut to the corporation tax and replacing Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng with former UK Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt. 
Talking to British media this morning, Hunt signaled that there is agreement that adjustments in the plan were due. Some of the things were mistakes, but the fundamental strategy behind it all, which is that we have to solve the growth paradox. If we want well-funded public services like the NHS and to keep taxes low and falling, then we have to increase our growth rate. That is absolutely right. British markets and currency values were shaken by the trust team's earlier agenda. Stocks ended the week mixed after another volatile week of trading. The Dow gained just over 1% while the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 lost ground. NPR's David Gura has more. The latest inflation data were worse than Wall Street expected, which led to a steep sell-off right out of the gate on Thursday, but it didn't take long for markets to recover, and stocks ended the day higher. But that momentum did not continue on Friday. All three major indexes ended the day down. Most of the big banks, including J.P. Morgan Chase and Citigroup, reported earnings on Friday, and all of them saw steep declines in investment banking and deal-making, because high interest rates are keeping corporate clients on the sidelines. There have been way fewer mergers and IPOs. Bank of America and Goldman Sachs report their earnings next week. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Prices are rising, but the Commerce Department reported this week the pace of U.S. retail sales were flat last month, with discretionary spending limited. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Newly released documents show top aides to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis played key roles in flying South American migrants from Texas to Massachusetts last month. The records indicate Florida's public safety czar Larry Keefe spent time in Texas to oversee the controversial program. The records also show Keefe regularly communicated with DeSantis' chief of staff in the week leading up to the flights. The program used Florida taxpayer money to charter two jets to secretly fly about 50 people to Martha's Vineyard on September 14th. Most of the migrants were from Venezuela, although the documents show at least two of them indicated they were born in Peru. The operation has led to several investigations and lawsuits. Teachers in Malden and in Haverhill are threatening to go on strike Monday if they don't get a new contract before then. Malden Teachers Union President Deb Gaswaldo says there's one other thing that could stop the job action. The Malden School Committee needs to agree to come to the table with the Malden Education Association this weekend, not a week from now, not Wednesday, not next week. They need to agree to come to the table sooner. This afternoon, teachers for both unions plan to rally outside their respective city halls. Brookline's recently appointed police chief was fired yesterday. An independent investigation found that Ashley Gonzalez sexually harassed several female members of the police department and that he violated town policy against sexual harassment, discrimination and retaliation. Gonzalez was sworn in as chief in June. In the forecast, sunshine today in Boston with a high around 70 degrees. Lows in the low 50s tonight. Mostly sunny tomorrow. Highs in the mid-60s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Brimmer and May, a pre-K through 12 all-gender day school in historic Chestnut Hill. Learn more at their open house October 23rd, brimmer.org. The Bull Run Restaurant in Shirley, featuring holiday shows with Tom Rush, Bill Kirchin, and Cherish the Ladies. Tickets and info at bullrunrestaurant.com. And Morgan Stanley with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the market. 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The United States and Saudi Arabia have been allies for decades, and when they do have their differences, they usually keep them behind closed doors. This week marked a dramatic breach in their relations, and much of that has to do with oil. NPR's international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam joins us now. Jackie, thanks so much for being with us. Morning, Scott. Uh, the to seems to have been touched off by OPEC Plus announcing that it's cutting back oil production. Remind us why this is such of a problem for all concerned. Well, there are a few reasons, and certainly one is the size of the cut, 2 million barrels per day. And this is at a time when the Biden administration wants to keep output high and in order to keep prices at the gas pump under control, and especially important, you know, with these midterm elections coming up. And let's face it, gas prices can have an effect on voters. But also those higher prices for oil will put money in Russia's coffers, which in turn will help the Kremlin execute its war in Ukraine, Russia's co-chair of OPEC+. What's interesting, Scott, is it became clear after the meeting that the Biden administration had put on a full court press with Saudi Arabia, which is the de facto leader of OPEC+, as well as other members of the cartel, not to do this, not to make this move. But those appeals were ignored. OPEC slashed oil output and members of Congress were outraged. Uh, Also, the Biden administration said on Tuesday it's going to be reviewing the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Do we know why Saudi Arabia didn't go along? Well, you know, the country's not known for transparency. The government there doesn't often explain things. But after the Biden administration objected to this cut and tied the move to the Ukraine war and said the producers were aligning with Russia, the Saudis did respond. Uh, The foreign ministry issued this extraordinary statement. It was several paragraphs long defending their decision. They said it was based purely on economics. It had nothing to do with American politics or Ukraine. And that, you know, roughly the two dozen members of OPEC agreed with the decision. The Biden administration turned around and dismissed those comments. John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesman, issued this sharply worded, almost angry statement saying the kingdom was trying to spin the story and deflect the facts. And he accused Saudi Arabia of helping Russia fund its war in Ukraine by pushing up oil revenue and of basically strong arming other OPEC members to go along with the decision. And again, Scott, all this was played out in the open, which is highly unusual. Yeah. And what happens now? Well, some Democrats in Congress want the U.S. to freeze weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, but, you know, those represent a lot of American jobs. And I spoke with one analyst, and he said that the U.S. has to recognize that there's a new leader in Saudi Arabia. And this is Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's very powerful. And he sees relations with the U.S. as more transactional than strategic, and that the U.S. has to decide if it wants to spend, you know, time and money trying to rebuild that strategic relationship or become more transactional itself. And that could affect the security arrangement, uh, which Saudi Arabia has depended on for decades. So, you know, maybe not sell the kingdom the most sophisticated U.S. weapons or maybe rethink U.S. troop sizes in the kingdom. But, Scott, what the U.S. could lose in doing that is, you know, a stable, reliable ally in the Gulf region, especially when it comes to energy. But after this week, it seems that may have already happened. And certainly the U.S.-Saudi relationship is on a different path now. NPR's Jackie Northam, thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. China's Communist Party Congress begins tomorrow. Major political event where China's leader, Xi Jinping, is expected to secure a third term in power as head of the Chinese Communist Party. He is also expected 
to lay out the goals of the party, including China's ambitions for the democratic island of Taiwan. And Paris Emily Fang is in Taiwan and joins us. Emily, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. Who gets to go to the party congress? It's a good question. About 2,300 Communist Party representatives are chosen from across the country. They get together in Beijing, usually every five years, and then they announce the party's next round of top leaders. How these 2,300 people actually choose these leaders is not exactly known. The process is not public. But what is at stake for us is whether Xi Jinping, who uh, is currently the general secretary of the party, if he'll get that title for a third time, and which of his allies will get appointed to the top party body called the Politburo Standing Committee. This Congress is also a chance to signal to the rest of the country where the ruling Communist Party is headed for the next five years. And so far from what we've seen, this party Congress is all about showing just how much power Xi Jinping has. So how significant is a third term for Xi? Well, it will prove definitively that Xi Jinping has consolidated enormous power in China, probably to a level not seen since Chairman Mao Zedong. But to put his potential third term in context, actually, it's not super important because staying in power for longer than designated is actually really common in China. And these clean power transitions in the Communist Party are rare because the reality is there's very little set in stone about how the Communist Party in China runs itself. I asked Damien Ma about this. He's managing director of the Chicago think tank Paulson Institute. So I wouldn't read too much into sort of how much norm was actually breaking because that implies there were very strong norms in this regard to begin with, and there just weren't. So this is all about optics, all about politics, all about Xi Jinping projecting strength. Just because there are no norms, though, doesn't mean that party leaders haven't tried to institutionalize norms beginning in the 1980s. And so what is exceptional about this party Congress is not so much that Xi Jinping is likely going to secure a third term as head of the party, but what is exceptional is by doing so, he's completely dismantling any effort at these political reforms. Emily, there were reports about a, uh, a rare protest in Beijing leading mm-hmm. up to this event. What do we know about that? Right. Last Friday, someone hung up two protest banners in Beijing, the Chinese capital, and they'd handwritten on these bedsheets, essentially, these big red characters with phrases like, we don't want COVID tests, we want food, and astonishingly, down with the dictator Xi Jinping. And this is notable because any kind of dissent is just so rare in China these days under Xi Jinping's rule that to see something like this during such a politically sensitive week is extraordinary. As we note, Emily, you're speaking from Taiwan Tensions, of course, have, well, they're always at odds. Tensions have recently been high with China. Tell us about the view of the Party Congress from Taiwan. What will they watch for? They're watching for what Xi Jinping says about Taiwan in his opening speech at the Congress tomorrow, because China, Xi Jinping, believes it controls Taiwan. And the concern is, as the U.S. draws closer to Taiwan and China gets more powerful, one day China might invade the island and make its belief that it controls the island a reality. NPR's Emily Fang in Taiwan. Thanks so much. Thanks, God. Inflation is felt in the reality of rising prices for almost everything Americans buy. And a lot of us have seen price increases that make food and recreational activities almost unaffordable. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith has the story. Home is where the inflation is right now. A lot of the biggest price jumps we've seen have been things like rent, heating, food. Grocery prices are up about 13% over last year. Steak, that's killing me. The same ribeye steaks that I was paying $17 for, for two of them, were now 32 
Steak lover Steve Brown is an optician in South Carolina. He works at an eyeglass store fitting people with frames. I've been doing it for 27 years. I can fit someone up just by looking at them. You just know what will look good on them? Yeah. The steak prices stung. But the price increase that really got Steve was gas prices, up 18% over last year. Steve has a long commute to work, and his favorite way to unwind is motorcycle rides on the weekend. The back roads, the back roads uh, by the marsh. There's water on both sides of the road. You can look over and see downtown Savannah. You can see the ports. It's beautiful. Total freedom. It's a good way to clear your head. I put music on. And all my problems just just go away. What do you listen to? Uh, I listen to a lot of heavy metal. Really? Like, what's one of your favorite songs? Uh, Rain and Blood by Slayer. But earlier this year, Steve noticed something else getting a bit bloody. His gas bill. Filling up the tank of his motorcycle went from costing him around $25 to around $50. So now? I just stay home and watch Netflix. But staying home isn't that cheap these days either. Rent is up more than 7% over last year. Electricity prices are up more than 15%. Natural gas is up more than 30%. Steve Brown says it's not missing out on the rides that's keeping him up at night. It's retirement. He's only 46, but he sees how rough the future might be every day at the eyewear store. I see some of these elderly patients that come in and, you know, they're like, do I pay the electric this month or do I get glasses? And my heart goes out to those people. Inflation analyst Omer Sharif says a lot of people are anxious about the future. He's been tracking inflation numbers for years, but lately he's been getting calls from family, friends, neighbors. They all want to have a conversation about inflation. It's like the last thing that I want to do. Uh, But this is what, you know, it's kind of on everybody's radar at this point. But Sharif is starting to see signs that prices will be dropping for rent, clothing, healthcare. He thinks this could be the darkness before the dawn. I'm hopeful that we should see a lot of relief coming. And actually, I feel better about the outlook than I have in quite a while. A lot of economists and forecasters are not so optimistic. A new survey shows Americans expect prices to keep rising. Steve Brown says he is just going to keep doing what he's doing, hoping that if he gives up a little bit now, he will still be able to afford the future he wants. He just got engaged has a whole plan. I just want to have a nice piece of property on the outskirts of town, have a garden, you know, have some animals, you know, not not a huge house, but, you know, a nice size house. Listen to a little Slayer every once in a while? Of course, you gotta have that. (laughs) Gotta have that. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918 and ahead on Weekend Edition Saturday, WBUR's Simone Rios has the story on yesterday's MBTA hearing led by Senator Elizabeth Warren. The Boston Book Festival kicks off Friday, October 28th and runs through Saturday. WBUR hosts will be there, 
For details, go to wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And Four Point Arts Communities Open Studios, alt rock, jazz, and open mic under the Moakley Bridge, plus film screenings through tomorrow, 4.os.org. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. President Biden today wraps up the last leg of his biggest campaign trip yet ahead of the midterms. He's set to deliver a speech on inflation in Portland, Oregon. Officials in northeast Ukraine say they have finished exhuming remains from a mass grave, even as more mass burials are being discovered every week in Russia's war on Ukraine. New York City's Great White Way will dim its lights for one minute at 745 tonight as Broadway remembers Angela Lansbury, an artist who packed houses there literally for decades. The star of stage, screen and television died on Tuesday at the age of 96. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food, on the web at theschmidt.org. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The Biden administration announced an agreement with Mexico this week to try to reduce the record number of Venezuelan migrants crossing the border illegally. The deal includes a new legal pathway for some Venezuelans if they can find a financial sponsor in the U.S. And for many Venezuelans, that just won't be easy. NPR's Joel Rose covers immigration and joins us. Joel, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Scott. Let's begin with a new agreement. What does it mean for people trying to flee Venezuela? That will depend a lot on their individual circumstances. On one hand, it will create a legal pathway for certain Venezuelans who can qualify. On the other hand, it means that many other migrants will be expelled back to Mexico if they cross the border illegally. Until now, the administration could not expel Venezuelan migrants under the pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42 because Mexico was refusing to take them in. And the U.S. can't send them back to Venezuela either because that government won't accept them. So the Biden administration had mostly been releasing Venezuelans into the U.S. where they could apply for asylum. But that had prompted very loud criticism from Republican governors who have been sending thousands of these migrants north in buses to cities run by Democratic mayors, especially New York, which has had a hard time absorbing these migrants. And Jill, of course, we've heard so much about those buses and maybe not as much about the people who've been on them. We're going to listen now to one story that you've brought us about a migrant family in New York. Yeah, NPR has been following one couple who first arrived in New York City back in August. Their names are Victor Viegas and Milagros Pineda. And like many of the Venezuelan migrants arriving now, 
they didn't have any family or friends anywhere in the U.S. Viegas says they came to New York because they didn't know where else to go. And they heard good things about the city from other migrants at a shelter in Texas. Their bus arrived on a Sunday. Viegas and Pineda tried to go to a homeless shelter for couples, but they were turned away because they're not legally married and they needed some paperwork that they couldn't get until Monday. We basically felt lost, Viegas says, without money and in the streets. Luckily, they did have the phone number of some volunteers who had met their bus in New York. They let Viegas and Pineda stay with them until the couple could get their paperwork issues fixed, so at least they wouldn't have to sleep on the street. We met Viegas and Pineda this week in a park near the homeless shelter where they're staying, next to an elevated subway line on a gritty block in Brooklyn. In many ways, they are still lost. They don't have work permits. They don't understand the immigration system. They have been able to work a little bit. Viegas has done some demolition, while Pineda is occasionally cleaning houses. But it's not enough. We are alone, Viegas says, trying to figure things out. Immigration experts say a lot of Venezuelan migrants are having the same experience. They're starting over in very precarious circumstances because they don't have the social networks in the United States that other migrants generally do. Andrew Seeley is the president of the Nonpartisan Migration Policy Institute in Washington. He says the latest wave of Venezuelan migrants is very different from Mexican and Central American migrants who've come before, who usually know someone in the U.S. before they arrive. They know whose couch they're going to sleep on. They know who's going to help them try and get their first job or maybe has already gotten that first job for them. The Venezuelans don't seem to be part of that planned migration. This mass migration of Venezuelans is relatively new for the U.S., but it's been happening for years in Latin America. U.S. officials say nearly 8 million people have left Venezuela, more than a quarter of the population, as the country's economy has collapsed under its authoritarian government and the impact of U.S. sanctions. We endured so much, says Victor Viegas. We tried to make things work in Venezuela, but we couldn't. There is no U.S. embassy in Venezuela, so the couple sold their car and possessions and headed north on foot. There have been some good moments in New York. Last week, the couple reunited with their kids, who were 20 and 21, and had been living in Peru for the last few years. Now they're all together in the same hotel that's serving as a homeless shelter. We have a microwave, a small fridge, and a TV, Pineda says. <laughs> there are lots of channels, jokes 20-year-old Danielle, but none in Spanish. The couple dreams about someday having jobs like the ones they left behind in Valencia, Venezuela, about two hours west of Caracas. Viegas owned a small soccer academy, and Pineda cooked in a restaurant. But they say finding work in the U.S. is harder than they expected. Everyone they know here is just like them, new arrivals. I can't help them, and they can't help us, Viegas says. We can only compare the experiences we are going through. And, Joel, the Biden administration's new legal pathway for some Venezuelan migrants, how exactly would that work? 
The administration says it will accept 24,000 Venezuelans into this new program, which is not a lot when you consider that more Venezuelans than that have been arriving at the border every month. And there are some very strict requirements. Migrants have to apply from abroad. If they cross the border illegally, they're disqualified. And they need a financial sponsor in the U.S. who can support them. But the reality is that's going to be a major obstacle for most of the migrants coming from Venezuela right now who simply don't have family or friends in the U.S. who can do that. Joel, thanks so much. NPR's Joel Rose. You're welcome. Vice President Harris is in Michigan today campaigning with Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who, of course, is up for re-election. Vice President then heads to California for more campaign events ahead of the midterms. It is a busy time for Vice President Harris. Last weekend, she was in Austin to raise money for the party. Here's what she said to Democrats there. We just need two more seats in the United States Senate. Okay? The stakes are high. We need two more seats, because here's the thing, with two more seats, we can codify Roe v. Wade. Two more seats. Two more seats. NPR political reporter Deepa Shivram joins us now. Deepa, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, good morning. And how critical have abortion rights become to Vice President Harris's strategy around the midterms? Yeah, Harris is really focusing on abortion as the key issue in her travels. She's held more than 20 events about reproductive rights since May. I spoke with Adrian Elrod, a Democratic strategist, about what Harris has been doing, and she said it's a smart strategy for the VP to focus on this topic around the country. It drives not just national news, but it really drives some of those really important local headlines. So when the vice president is traveling to various states. I mean, her visit to those states will likely lead most of the daily papers in that state, or at least in that specific area. And Scott, I traveled with Harris to Connecticut last week for one of these abortion events that she did. It's a blue state, but there is a really close congressional race there. And there was local coverage of that event throughout Hartford. And even when she's not traveling, she's been doing local radio interviews in different states as well. So the strategy here is really to keep abortion rights in the headlines in these last few weeks of the election. And Deepa, what what indications are there as to how voters might be responding? Yeah, well, polling shows that topics like abortion are high motivating factors for both Democrats and independents. And the idea is to get them out to vote in elections that sometimes have lower turnout, like midterms. But abortion isn't the only thing. A majority of voters right now say inflation is the biggest concern for them, and issues around immigration are important, too. And that's one topic that some people think Harris hasn't spoken out on enough. Domingo Garcia, the president of a Latino advocacy group called LULAC, said that among people in his community in Texas, the enthusiasm to vote in the midterms is lukewarm. He feels that even though one of Harris's jobs in the administration is to focus on migration, it's been on a back burner for Democrats this election cycle. The silence has been deafening, and that's allowed the Republicans to take the lead and use immigration as a wedge issue in the midterms. And you'll recall, Scott, this is an issue that has quite literally come to the vice president's doorstep with Republican governors like Greg Abbott from Texas busing migrants to her home in Washington, D.C. Republicans often use the topic of immigration to get Republican voters out to the polls. So there is some concern that Democrats' response here, including Harris's, hasn't been strong enough. Well, what else are people expecting to see from the vice president in these final weeks? 
I think one thing to keep an eye on is her fundraising for the party. She was a top fundraiser for Democrats in the presidential election, so you can definitely expect more of that from her. And she'll be holding more events, especially ones that target women and young voters that focus on the work the administration has been doing. But don't expect too many traditional events where she's standing next to candidates rallying on stage. Her political popularity, as well as the president's, are not very high. So there's some distance between the administration and Democratic candidates in tight races on the campaign trail. And pure political reporter Deepa Shivram, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. That time of the week. And now it's time for sports. Baseball's most winning team and last season's champs. On their heels in the playoffs, the NHL and NBA back in season and a tough report on a controversial Football owner Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media joins us. Howard, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. But Cleveland rocks. Uh, <laughs> so does Philly. So does San Diego. Um, L.A. Dodgers and the reigning champs, uh, the Atlanta Braves, are having problems. What do, uh, how do things shape up for you? Well, things are heating up, Scott. Things are heating up really, really quickly. We created... Uh, we have a new playoff format now where you have more playoff teams. And historically, as we talked about you know, last week, that baseball is supposed to be the sport where the best team has the best chance to win. And now it's a tournament. You have the 111-win Dodgers one game away from getting knocked out. If they don't win tonight against the San Diego Padres, a team that they were 22 games better than. Yeah. They, were, they, they won that division by 22 games over the Padres. And now the Padres have a chance to knock them out and go to the NLCS. You, you've got the Braves, who won 101 games, and they're a game away from getting knocked out by Philadelphia, who's not a very good team during the season. They won 87 games. They're 14 games behind, 14 games out behind the Braves. And so there's a, there's a chance, you know, there is a chance that you could have three 100-win teams in the National yeah. League and have none of them make the National League Championship Series. But this is what we've asked for. This is the, mm -hmm. this is the new sport. On the other hand, yeah. if you're a 100-win team and if you're a great team the way you're supposed to be when you have that, you know, those big lofty numbers, then you can win two games in a row and you prove that you're the better team. But we really have entered a new space in, in baseball now where the, you know, the, the, turn, the, the postseason is a tournament and, you know, if you get a 10% chance to win, it's not a guarantee anymore that all those big numbers are going to do much for you. I say this as an Aaron Judge fan. Uh, he's been a little cold at the plate, hasn't he? That's a, that is an understatement. Aaron Judge is 0 for 8 with 7 strikeouts. And he had 62 home runs, and everyone's expecting the big guys to show up. But it doesn't always work that way in the postseason, especially when they're concentrating on you. They're making sure that you're the guy that doesn't beat them. However... If the if the Yankees are going to do anything going forward, they're another one. They won ninety nine games. If they're not going to do anything, if 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 Judge isn't going to be the guy, then then they're in big trouble too, and they're really up against it against Cleveland. And let's give some props as well. Instead of talking about all the big guys, let's talk about Terry Francona for a second. One yeah, I love Terry Francona. Manager. See you in Cooperstown, Tito. He's one of the best to ever do it, and he's proving it again with this young team. And no matter what they do, he's been, he's just always, always got his teams ready to play. Yeah. Um, NHL, NBA um, are back. 
Yeah, not, it's not clear to me the Chicago out. Blackhawks even have skates this year. <laughs> well, the team, of course, we're watching this Cole McCarr and the Colorado Av- Avalanche. They hoisted their championship banner. See if they can do it again, of course. Uh, we, we say this all the time, Scott. Uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs, is this going to be their year for the Leafs? The Leafs have, n- have not been to the Stanley Cup championship round since 1967 in one of the great hockey capitals of the world. Yeah. So is, is this the year for the Maple Leafs? Uh, you're asking me? <laughs> I'm, asking, I'm asking the universe. I'm, oh, all right. I'm a, I'm a Habs fan myself. But, uh, you know, les habitants. But um, I, I, that's a question that uh, obviously is going to hang uh, all season, isn't it? I, it is. Yeah, I'm also a, a Hawks fan and uh, dark times on that ice. Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media, thanks so much for being with us. No, my pleasure, Scott. Thank you. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. In Boston yesterday, U.S. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey of Massachusetts confronted state officials about the recent safety problems on the MBTA. The problems include deaths, injuries, derailments, and an orange line train that caught on fire on a bridge over the Mystic River. The senator said Massachusetts has had years to make sure riders on the T have a reliable transit system, but has come up short. WBUR Simone Rios was at the hearing that was chaired by Senator Warren. Warren said she wanted to have the hearing to hold transit officials accountable to the people of Massachusetts. She cited a report from the Federal Transit Administration from 2019 calling for changes at the T. Warren asked Department of Public Utilities Chair Matthew Nelson why he didn't do more to address the issues cited in the report three years ago. This is your job is to oversee the MBTA. Where were you? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a fair question. And Good. The, the answer to that question is the department, when we took an assessment of the situation on the MBTA, we started to develop an, a hiring plan to bring more and new people into the unit, the rail safety unit, in 2020. Sitting next to Nelson was T General Manager Steve Poftak. Poftak said officials are committed to continuing to make the tea safer and more reliable. I want to state unequivocally today to the committee and to our customers that the system is safe, but we can and will do better. Warren responded that all the problems the tea has faced over the last four years have happened on Poftak's watch. But here's what the investigation from the FTA found. I quote, MBTA's executive management, that's you, does not consistently ensure its decisions related to safety risks are based on safety data or documented facts. I nearly fell over when I read that. Also testifying at the hearing was Nuria Fernandez, the administrator for the Federal Transit Administration. That's the agency that helps oversee the T. It recently issued a scathing report of both the T and the Department of Public Utilities, the state agency that's supposed to oversee safety at the regional transit agency. Fernandez made it clear that the federal government has no plans to take over the MBTA. Because uh, we have seen uh, this notion in news reports, and I think it's important that I clarify 
the Federal Transit Administration does not have the legal authority to take over the day-to-day -day operations of any transit agency in this nation. Fernandez also says the agency plans to continue to provide hundreds of millions of dollars in federal grants for the T. But Warren wasn't satisfied with the answers from state officials. After the hearing, she said the leadership at the T needs to change. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, helping teachers to become agents of learning in the community through master's programs and licensures. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. Arts Emerson's On Beckett. Bill Irwin's On Beckett running at the Paramount Theater in Boston, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at artsemerson.org. And Pingree School, a vibrant, all-gender, independent day school for grades 9 to 12 on the North Shore, hosting an open house today from 11 to 2. Pingree.org slash open house. This is 90.9 WBUR. Boston City Councilor Ruthie Luijan says the United States must take steps to help the people in Haiti. Luijan, a Haitian-American, says with armed gangs controlling the capital city, people are afraid to leave their homes for basic needs. And she says the U.S. needs to stop deportations of Haitian migrants fleeing their country and should impose sanctions on those facilitating gang violence. And we also want the government to stop propping up the current government in Haiti that does not have a popular or constitutional mandate. Louis-Jean says Boston's Haitian community is on edge and cannot send money home because banks are closed and systems are not functioning. Today, she's hosting a conference of the state of Haitian Americans in Massachusetts. That's at the Community Center in Mattapan. This has become a longer-than-expected weekend for students at the Roche Elementary School in Groton. Students were sent home early yesterday after about 200 students were sickened by a suspected stomach virus. School officials say classrooms and common areas in the school will be deep-cleaned and disinfected before students return to class on Monday. The Boston Public Health Commission is warning people to avoid part of Boston Harbor upstream of the North Washington Street Bridge until tomorrow morning. The commission says a sewage overflow yesterday has caused an increased health risk from bacteria and other pollutants. In sports tonight at the Garden, the Bruins host the Arizona Coyotes. It's 53 degrees in Boston, sunny today, a high around 70, lows overnight in the low 50s. A mostly sunny Sunday, tomorrow's high in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Hey, I'm Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, providing instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. Live, online, or in-person programs for reading, comprehension, and math. LindaMoodBell.com slash NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. 
The musical 1776 has been given a revolutionary new production on Broadway. Instead of telling the story of the founding of America, the cast of mostly white males, this version uses a cast of multiracial actors who are female, non-binary, and trans. People who weren't even considered in the Declaration of Independence. Jeff London reports. When 1776 premiered on Broadway in 1969, America was enmeshed in the Vietnam War, and the anti-war musical, Hair, was a big hit. So a musical featuring singing and dancing founding fathers seemed like a long shot. Instead, it became a popular Tony Award winner. In the 2022 revival, it sounds like this. Co-director Diane Paulus had never seen or read 1776 when she was approached about working on a new production. She says she found the script powerfully relevant, but wanted to give the show a new frame by casting people who are not cis white males. We're here. It's 2022. Now you're going to watch this cast of brilliant performers literally and metaphorically step into the shoes of the founding father. The production has gotten mixed reviews. Some critics find the approach refreshingly illuminating, others not so much. One critic called it terminally woke. Petrina Murray, who plays Benjamin Franklin, says even before it opened, she was hearing grumbles from purists on social media. Sometimes I look at the Facebook posts and I see folks who I feel need to see the play but won't because um, they call it revisionist theater. But for the cast, taking on these traditionally male white roles is powerful, says Crystal Lucas Perry, the black actor who plays John Adams. It's also like incredibly validating to literally step your foot into something that feels like you're stepping into a history where you were purposely not meant to be. Some of the staging radically revises musical numbers, like The Egg, a sweet song sung by John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson as they contemplate the birth of a new nation. We're waiting for the chirp, chirp, chirp of an eaglet being born. In this version, a video of 246 years of American history, good, bad, and ugly, flashes on a curtain behind the actors, while the noticeably pregnant Elizabeth A. Davis, who plays Jefferson, shreds on an electric violin. I'm playing the national anthem Jimi Hendrix style. But I could just be like chicken scratching and we would get the same message, that this is about revolution, this is about turning things on its head. Jefferson, who was a slave owner, wrote a clause in an early draft of the Declaration of Independence abolishing slavery. And the climax of 1776 is the fight over that paragraph. The delegates from the South want it cut, the delegates from the North want to keep it, but the vote for independence needs to be unanimous. Molasses to rum to slaves 
This song, Molasses to Rum, sung by the delegate from South Carolina, points out the North's complicity in the slave trade. In the original, the song is a chilling solo. Here, it's an ensemble number, and the black actors are seen as enslaved people, says Diane Paulus. You see the performers in their identities, whether they're black or non-black people of color in our cast, collaborate in this enactment to show the audience that this is not something that we look at from the past, but that this has resonance and continues to have resonance. Crystal Lucas Perry says the staging doesn't just shake the audience, but the cast. It's heavy and it's, it's not easy. And what it costs us as performers, as people of color, as people of different ethnicities and genders, there's a cost that goes into it. And in this interpretation, the signing of the Declaration of Independence at the end isn't a triumph, but a warning of those costs, says actor Petrina Murray. Independence is just another word for freedom. And so one of the things that I think about this play is, well, freedom for who, really? 1776 plays on Broadway until January 9th. Then it goes on a 16-city national tour. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. Talk about cashing in on a mistake. A former soccer referee from Tunisia is putting a ball up for auction. It's expected to sell for around $3 million because it is the same ball that the Argentine legend Diego Maradona touched with his hand to tap toward the goal and score perhaps the most famous soccer goal of all time. That is why England is so furious. Maradona has punched it in with his left hand. The hand of God, as the goals become known, shouldn't have been allowed, but that missed call gave Argentina a lead in the 1986 World Cup quarterfinal against England, which they went on to win. Argentina would also win the World Cup that summer. Maradona became an international star and a national hero. He died in 2020 and is remembered as one of the all-time greats who excelled at passing and ball control, but is still remembered best for a controversial goal that he scored with his hand rather than his feet. Time now to dance, and we got the perfect song. If you see a faded sign at the side of the road that says 15 miles to the Love Shack. Love Shack by the B-52s, Fred Schneider, Kate Pearson, Cindy Wilson, and Keith Strickland. New Wave Band from Athens, Georgia, has been rolling nonstop since 1977 through the good, the bad, the funky, and the weird. But now, the B-52s are about to put the brakes on. They're on the road without Keith for their farewell tour. Well, we're, the it's the tour. last tour, but it doesn't mean we're not going <laughs> to uh, do shows anymore. This, we're, we're not going to tour anymore, really. Well, we say that, but we're not going to do like an Elton John or Cher thing where we keep touring and say we're not. I keep calling it the Cher well tour because, you know, never say never, but being on the road is wearing, but playing the shows, it's great. So yeah, we'll do shows. We'll do We'll shows. do more shows, especially like oh. festivals and big outdoor Fireworks. Places, state fairs, bar mitzvahs. You're not ruling out much. I mean, uh, well, I think what he's trying to say is uh, long tours and and being away from home for a long time is is hard. I wonder if you can bring us back a bit. I mean, a, a lot of people have wondered what was in the water 
<laughs> of Athens, Georgia, in the mid to late 70s. Fluoride. Uh, all right. But, I mean, you know, uh, B-52, R-E-M. Well, well there was we, nothing to do, so. We were the first sort of new wavy punk band, so we had to make our own fun. And we just one night had a flaming volcano at Hunan's Chinese restaurant. And we, had, we didn't have money for food. We had... Five straws, six straws, actually, because our friend Owen Scott was with us, and we started jamming in Owen's basement after the flaming volcano, and magic was in the air. But we used to party and crash parties. Ruin parties. Oh, well, you know, it was... Uh, Athens it had a really great vibe, you know. You didn't need a lot of money, which is why a lot of people ended up staying, you know, when, once they uh, just Rents were like 60 bucks a month. <laughs> My rent was $15 a month. I had sort of the original Love Shack out in the country. It was set way back in the middle of a field. It well, was Love funky. Shack, <laughs> it didn't have a bathroom, though. We, uh, <laughs> we don't need to hear everything you understand, but that's all right. Well, all right, Fred Schneider. Yes. I, I think I Here. speak for a lot of people when I ask. Are you crazy? (laughs) Well, maybe. Why rock lobster and not rockfish? We were at a party. Well, I went to this place in Atlanta called the 2001 Disco, and they had slides of puppies, babies, (laughs) and lobsters on a grill, and I thought, oh, wait, oh, rock, rock lobster. And that's the way I think. So I came back and uh, jammed on it, and we, we, the way we work is we jam and... They're all the inspiration. Yeah. The, <laughs> but Fred was a poet. We do things differently. There's no one leader or anything like that. Everyone really shares, and you could see that on stage because we all work together. We write. The process of writing is by jamming, and then we yeah. collage things together. Kate and Cindy had never sung together before, and all of a sudden, they blended like no other like butter. people. Yeah, like Fleischmann's margarine. <laughs> ocean in the ocean. On this tour, uh, I'm told you're playing Is That You, Modine? Yes. You should tell that story, Fred, about what we used to do. Well, we used to, uh, if Ricky broke a string, I was sort of like, all of a sudden. This is Ricky Wilson, your brother Cindy. uh, I was the front man. Um, You told I would get the audience to, uh, it was Maureen Dean, John Dean's wife, and she was called Mo Dean. So I thought, (laughs) that's a good name for someone from outer space. and so I'd have the audience go, is that you, Modine? And I'd go, it's me, Modine. And we'd go back and forth till Ricky fixed his guitar. Fixed his, uh, guitar and then I'd just go, thank you. Or I'd say, are there any questions? And then i just make up questions because I couldn't hear what the audience was saying and answer them. And... <laughs> well, we had another um, imaginary entity 
and it was Bronda. Yeah, when that... things would go wrong, <laughs> Bronda did it. Oh, like the yeah. imaginary friend who lost yes. his things up? The imaginary yeah, yeah. Uh, nemesis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cindy. Yes, darling. I hope you don't mind. May I ask you about your brother, Ricky? Oh, you know, yes, he's he was very special. Of course, we all miss him very dearly, and... Uh, it was like an atom bomb when Ricky passed, of course. And he, he died, I guess, in 1985, right? Yes, yeah. he did, you know, and uh, it was terrible. It was just the worst thing, you know. Personally, a lot of death and destruction was going on, and and it was all very new and early in the whole set of AIDS. You were even afraid to say you were gay back then a lot of times because it, the response was, you know, you get beaten up and places sometimes yeah i think everybody went to a deep depression and uh, and eventually i sorted it out within myself that i'm gonna always have ricky and you know he's gonna always gonna be with me yeah he had such a unique playing style that he sort of had a, a rhythmic part on some of the lower strings, and then he'd have a melodic part on the top strings, and he was just like such a, and he would just be on fire when he played on stage. That's why he broke so many strings, because he was just dynamic. And yeah, the intense. He used the guitar, it was almost like a, a, a gun, you know, well, it was it just was like. A, it was complete uh, firing. concentration. It must winch a little to think that he well, just to lose him personally and to think he didn't see so much of your success. Although I guess he has seen it, hasn't he? We conjured a lot of his spirit, I think, when we did Cosmic Thing. We thought we, that was the end kind of of our band when Ricky died, but we came back together. Keith started writing some music, and, and we started getting back together and jamming. You know, Keith was in a big depression, and the way he got through it is writing music. And we didn't know, you know, with Warner Brothers, if we were going to do another record. And then he approached us and said, well, do you want to try, you know? And so mm. we went to a studio and just uh, played around to see how it could do it. And it felt like Ricky was in the studio. It did. And it became obvious that it was a healing process for us all. Yeah. Mm. The music, making music. Making music together. Yeah. And then uh, when it started get, getting radio play, you know, that was affirmation. What do you see when you look out at today's audiences? What do you notice about them? They're still dancing no matter what age they are. I mean, some people sit down, I don't know why. Um, but most people stand and dance the whole hour and 15 minutes we're on. And I noticed a lot of young people, and it seems much more lately, and I think it's because of the internet and YouTube and all the people posting stuff, that there are all these young kids there now, and li some little kids really dancing too, but uh, it's Brad, to have a much younger audience Brad sang, too. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. To a four-year-old. Well, well, we, we all, all did. did. <laughs> <laughs> it was very cute. It was very cute. Yeah, she was tiny. I forgot kids are that tiny. <laughs> Forgot. Well, like, they're kids, really. I mean, well, I mean, they that grow. That tiny. Sometimes they grow.
Fred Schneider and uh, Kate Pearson and Cindy Wilson of the B-52s. Their last tour on Earth is going on now. I want to thank you all for being with us and uh, for so much good music. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Culligan Water since 1936. A local Culligan specialist can provide in-home water tests and custom recommendations to treat the unique attributes of a home's water. More at Culligan.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. Prompt.com, with a mission to help students stand out on their college applications and get into their top colleges through one-on-one application and essay coaching. More at Prompt.com. And the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, presenting Medal of Honor, showcasing artistic interpretations of gold from the Renaissance and today. GardnerMuseum.org. Later today on This American Life. Last while, Rachel got a text from her brother. Dad's dead. COVID. She didn't even know he was sick. Her brother was unvaccinated. Now he was sick. She talked him into going to a hospital. Then he told her they'd let him go home. Only, he was lying. And Rachel had to excavate the truth. That's this week. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.